You're going to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. That's where we pick up our story. I grew up in churches. My family attended church uh, as far back as I can remember. My childhood was in the late 70s and early 1980s. And in those days, we went to church. You know what I mean? There were three church services every Sunday morning. There was a church service Sunday night. There was midweek service Wednesday night. And there was Bible study in the house on Thursday evening. And in my family, we went to all of them. We went to all of them. Uh, we went to church back in those days. You know what I'm saying? And I can remember, another thing that I remember about that era is that there was a peak in interest in churches like the ones that my family was attending. Uh, an interest in end times events. The kind of things that the Bible has to say in passages like the book of Revelation about what's going to happen when. And I can remember on more than one occasion in my childhood being in sermons or Sunday school classes and the speaker would have a chart or a map or a timeline that referred to biblical prophecy about future events. And I can remember at a relatively young age learning words like rapture and tribulation and antichrist. I can remember that we used to discuss and debate, do you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or do you believe in a post-tribulation rapture? And then there were the fence sitters who were like, I believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. And if you don't know what those terms mean, don't worry about it. We're not gonna get into it today. But maybe you, like me, kind of cut your teeth spiritually, whatever chronological age you might be. Maybe you cut your teeth spiritually in an environment like that where we were talking an awful lot about end times. It seems to me we don't talk as much about those kinds of things these days, at least not in the way we did back then. More on that later. What I can tell you is I can remember as a kid encountering those things, being interested, being interested like, oh wow, the Bible says this is going to happen and wow, the Bible says that's going to happen. And what would that be like if the moon turned red? Like, I wonder what that would look like. What would it be like if, if horsemen just started riding through the heavens? Like, what would that look like? Like, I can remember being very interested in that. But I can remember also being kind of scared. Like, there's some stuff about that that's... Well, is it too much of an understatement to say it's weird? It's weird, isn't it? And it's frightening and it's scary. And whether you're a child or a grown-up, I think a lot of us have had those kinds of frightening experiences and interactions with, with biblical prophecy about the end of days. And I actually know we can quantify, we have you know, all these interesting studies that we do. And there's a lot of Christians still today that will tell you, I don't read the book of Revelation because it's scary. <laughs> There's a lot of Christians that will tell you today, I don't like to get into that end time biblical prophecy because it's weird and because it's frightening. And I wonder if you can just, you know, for some of you, I'll bet that's your story. I'll bet you'd say, yep, that's me. That's me. I'll take the Gospels. I'll take Jesus. I'll read those letters by Paul. But when we get into the weird stuff about clouds parting and, and armies being raised up and Armageddon and all that stuff, 
I'm gonna outsource that and leave that to you guys. I, I, I'm out on that. I wonder what your experience with that has been. Just kind of file that away and think about it for a few moments because we're gonna have to wade through some of that stuff in Daniel chapter eight, but I think we're going to do it. My hope, my goal, my plan is that we're gonna do it in a way that doesn't stir up fear or concern or perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, an unhealthy obsession. We're gonna take the word as it is. In Daniel chapter eight, Daniel records another vision that he had about his future about things that were, from his perspective, still in the future. This vision took place about two years after the vision that we read about last week, the four beasts in Daniel chapter seven. So if you wanna put this on your timeline, we're in about 550 BC. Daniel is probably in his late 60s. And yes, he is still working for the kings of Babylon. He's still doing what he's been doing vocationally for the past 50 years or so. And here we have Daniel, once again, having another God-given dream. I'm not gonna read every verse of this chapter. I'm not gonna read most of the verses of the chapter, but let me summarize his dream this way. In his dream, he's transported to the city of Susa, which is on the Eastern regions of the Babylonian empire. It's close to the place where the Persians are beginning to, to gather their strength and influence. And as he's kind of in this vision transported to Susa, Daniel essentially has this dream about a battle between a ram who has lopsided horns and a goat that kind of looks like a unicorn. Daniel clearly had a spicy burrito before he went to bed. So he has this dream about this, this battle between the ram with lopsided horns and a male goat with a big unicorn. First, the ram is kind of destroying everybody and everything, but then the goat comes sweeping in from the west and just knocks the horns off the ram and subdues the ram, and then the goat kind of just wreaks havoc on everything around him. And then the goat's horn, unicorn horn, unexpectedly falls off and he grows other horns and it gets crazy. And right about this time, Daniel, once again, is looking at this, this vision. He's seeing this in his dream kind of played out before him. And he's going, I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> don't you love that Daniel, who could interpret everybody else's dreams, when he had one, he's going, I got nothing here, folks. And so in the dream, he does what he had done in chapter seven. He encounters an angel who's going to tell him what the dream means. What's interesting is in this dream, we're told the name of that angel is Gabriel, who will have a more famous assignment about 550 years later. So Gabriel begins to give Daniel the meaning of the images that he sees. And unlike some of the other dreams that we've, we've read about in the book of Daniel and in Daniel's stories where the, the applications are a little vague and I've told you, well, some people think it means this and some people think it means that. Gabriel actually tells Daniel some very, very specific information about the dream that he's just had. Gabriel says the ram with the two lopsided horns represents the kings of Medea and Persia. Now horns, you may know, Daniel would have understood this at the time, horns in the ancient world were a very common symbol for power and authority. So they were lopsided because the king of Persia had more power than the king of Medea. 
And Gabriel tells Daniel, now the goat that came running out of the west, the goat represents Greece, and he has one large horn like a unicorn because this represents a very, very powerful king of Greece, but eventually the large horn fell off and it was replaced by four smaller horns, which represent four lesser kings that will replace the one great king. And then finally, a very small horn emerges on the goat's head, but it grows so quickly that that little tiny horn that began small reached all the way up to the heavens and the horn waged war against God himself, oppressing God's people. The small horn had great power, the ability to destroy God's temple, oppress God's people. Now the daily sacrifices had been going on at God's temple in Jerusalem. And Daniel overhears two angels talking about how the destruction of the temple would mean that 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices were gonna be missed. Keep that number in mind, 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices. So this is Gabriel telling Daniel what the dream means. Much more detailed than we've seen in the past, yes? Now, a little bit of history. I know you came to church this morning thinking, man, I hope we get a world history lesson. I hope, I hope my understanding of the empires of the ancient Near East is expanded in church. Well, your prayers have been answered. Because here's what happened after Daniel. We already know these things from ancient history, but Daniel couldn't have known these things. Daniel had this vision in or about 550 BC. And at that time, there were two other empires to the east of Babylon. I already referenced them. There was the empire of the Medes, who were an ancient empire. And they were actually often allies and friends to the Babylonians. But then there was the empire of the Persians, who were younger, but they were more powerful. They were rising quickly and becoming a concern to the Babylonians. Now, just a few months after Daniel had this vision, the Medes and the Persians united, thus the ram with the lopsided horns. They created the powerful, if not somewhat unbalanced empire, the Persian Empire. Now this Medo-Persian Empire was more powerful than the Babylonians had ever been. In fact, about 10 years after Daniel's dream, the Medes and the Persians are going to march into Babylon and they are going to take over the royal city without so much as a fight. That's how powerful they were. The Persian Empire remained the undisputed superpower for more than 200 years. But then, almost without warning, Alexander the Great rose to power out in the west from where Daniel was, out in Greece. And the Greek Empire, in no time at all, swept through the region. Alexander is the great unicorn horn on that goat. He comes out of the west to destroy the ram. Alexander defeated the Medo-Persian Empire in 331 BC. But remember how that unicorn horn fell off the goat so quickly? In 323 BC, at just 32 years old, Alexander died unexpectedly from sickness likely uh, malaria or typhoid or something like that. And without an obvious heir to his empire, Alexander's kingdom, his, his, his reign was replaced. He was replaced by four generals who ruled four different quadrants of his empire, thus the four smaller horns on the goat in Daniel's dream. 150 years after that, in 175 BC, 
There was a young man named Antiochus who usurped one of those four smaller thrones, one of those four smaller kings. Of course, the, the, the reign had passed from son to son to son to son. One of the kings had died, and Antiochus was part of the royal family, but he probably wasn't the legitimate heir to the throne, but he took advantage of some of the chaos in the kingdom, and he seized power, and took control of the army, and thereby became the ruler of one-fourth of, of Alexander's empire. He just happened to be in charge of the part that included Israel. He's the small horn that grew up and grew all the way to the heavens to make war on God. Antiochus gave himself the name Epiphanes, which in Greek means the manifestation of God. He said, I am Antiochus, God on earth. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. He stopped all worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He made it illegal for the Jewish people to offer the morning and evening sacrifices. Instead, he erected a statue of Zeus where the temple altar had once stood, and he sacrificed, of all things, pigs on that altar. And on pain of death, he forced the Jewish priests and the leaders to eat pork from his sacrifices and to drink the blood of the pigs that he sacrificed. And this went on for three years and two months. For three years and two months, the Jews in Jerusalem were not able to practice their religion. They were not able to go to the temple. They were not able to offer the sacrifices each morning and each evening. And then after three years and two months of this reign of Antiochus, the Jews in Jerusalem led a successful revolt against him. That's where we get the story of Hanukkah, if you're familiar with the history of that holiday. The temple was cleansed and the daily worship rituals were reinstituted. Does anybody want to take a guess at how many morning and evening sacrifices had been missed over the course of three years and two months? 2,300. Just like Daniel's dream had foretold about 400 years prior. Now in Daniel's dream, Gabriel told him that the horn that represented Antiochus would be broken, but not by human power. And about a year after that revolt in Jerusalem, Antiochus was stricken with a disease and he died. And so it seems that we know from history, Daniel wouldn't have known this because it hadn't happened yet, but we can look back at secular history and realized that the events in Daniel's dream were fulfilled in amazing detail over the course of about 400 years. And they encapsulate some of the most important events in the history of God's people throughout that era. But there's something interesting about Bible prophecy that I want us to consider today. Very often, very often in scripture, the prophecies in the Old Testament that point towards future events I'm not just talking about Daniel here. I'm talking about in general throughout the Old Testament. Very often those prophecies have a literal fulfillment in the short term, but they have a more symbolic, oftentimes more important fulfillment in the long term. A literal fulfillment in the short term, but a more important symbolic fulfillment in the long term. It's like the fulfillments of the prophecies echo and resonate throughout time. Let me give you a couple of examples you'll likely be familiar with. When Abraham and Isaac were headed up the mountain to make a sacrifice, and young Isaac is 
looking around, recognizing that they didn't bring an animal with them. And he's starting to get a little bit nervous. He says, Dad, we brought everything we need for the sacrifice, but we didn't bring an animal. Why is that? Abraham looks at Isaac and prophetically says to him, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. They get to the top of the mountain and find that God has in fact provided a lamb for them. But we recognize that prophecy to have a more symbolic, much more important fulfillment in the large scope of history. We are a people that believe that God himself has provided the lamb. I'll give you another example. When King David made plans to build a temple for the Lord, God spoke through a prophet by the name of Nathan, telling him, you don't need to build this temple because I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build my house, and I will establish his throne forever. David literally had a son named Solomon who did, in fact, build the temple and and God established his house that way. But we recognize that prophecy is pointing to Jesus, a descendant of King David's, one of his sons who came to build God's kingdom and his throne was established forever. A literal fulfillment in the near term, but a much more important symbolic fulfillment in the long term. Would, Would you hate me if I gave you one more example? Doesn't matter, I have the microphone. (laughs) This might be your favorite. When old King Ahaz asked the prophet Isaiah to confirm something that God had promised to King Ahaz, Ahaz kind of said, but but prophet Isaiah, like how do we know for sure that this is gonna happen? How do we know for sure that God is gonna do what he said when he's going to do it? Isaiah pointed out one of the young ladies in waiting, serving in Ahaz's court and proclaimed, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. He was pointing to a a young lady serving in the court. But what do we see that prophecy is pointing toward in the longer term? The virgin will conceive. She will give birth to a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. A literal fulfillment in the relatively short term but a more important symbolic fulfillment in the long term. We see it again and again. Trust me, trust me, trust me. We could sit here all day and do this. What if, what if a similar thing is happening in Daniel chapter eight? What if even though the events foretold to Daniel came true in the literal sense over the course of the next couple of hundreds of years, what if God was revealing some things that would remain true and resonate throughout time? Wouldn't it behoove all of us to take notice of what God was saying to Daniel in this dream? Shouldn't we dispense with the history lesson and pay closer attention to what God is telling us about his people and evil and ruin and righteousness? One of the things that Daniel was told in the dream is that the visions he saw, quote, relate to the time of the end. Now, what was meant by that is the end of Judah's time in captivity. Daniel's dream was about the things that would be happening as as his countrymen would no longer need to be in captivity. But historically, many people have taken, many Christians, many theologians have taken that reference. They've taken the lessons from Daniel's dream and they've applied them not just to the time of the end, but to the end of time. 
And when I say many people have, do it, have done that, I'm not talking about professors and universities and think tanks and theologians who get it wrong as often as they get it right. I'm talking, frankly, about Jesus. Jesus borrowed from Daniel when he talked about the end of time. I'm talking about John, the revelator, the, the author of the book of Revelation. He borrowed imagery from Daniel as he spoke about the end of time. And the Bible continues to use this imagery from the book of Daniel to say, you know, church, there's some things that maybe we need to be aware of. And so I think it makes sense for us to be aware of them today. I already asked you how you feel when we talk about what the Bible has to say about global scale events that are in our future. How does that make you feel? I know that for many of us, we respond to messages like that with, with fear. I want you to imagine, how do you suppose Daniel felt when he had these dreams? He actually tells us, and I'm gonna to read to you now from verse 17. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. But while he was speaking, I love this, I fainted and I lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and he helped me to my feet. How did Daniel feel? Oh, there's no shame in his game. He doesn't mind telling us, he was afraid. He was afraid. He responds with shock and fear. He uses the word terrified. And you can picture him there on the ground, cowering, apparently afraid to even look up. If I had been Daniel, I probably would have just stayed on the floor. Stayed on the floor the whole time. But God sent Gabriel. But God sent Gabriel. And we think of the angel coming to tell Daniel what's really going on. We think of Gabriel in particular, right? As God's mouthpiece, as God's proclaimer. Gabriel was there to say something. Well, yes, that's true. But Gabriel wasn't just there to teach Daniel about the future. Gabriel was there to reach out and place his hand on the shoulder of a frightened man and to help him back up to his feet. You see, God doesn't want to proclaim his word to us without planning to also comfort us in our fears. His intent isn't to frighten us to death and leave us cowering in fear like Daniel was initially. Here's what I want you to remember. God doesn't want us to fear the future. God doesn't want us to fear the future. When I was a preschooler, one of my favorite books was called The Monster at the End of the Book. Mom, do you remember reading that one to me? My, my niece has recently discovered this book and I've gotten to read it to her as well, which is a great delight because I haven't picked it up in a little while. My copy is dog-eared and highlighted throughout it. Um, the Monster at the End of the Book is a golden book that features Grover from Sesame Street. And the title of the book is The Monster at the End. There, there is a monster at the end of this book. And as you open it to the first page, Grover is scared because he heard you say there's a monster at the end of the book. 
And so Grover pleads with you not to turn the pages because each time you turn a page, you're getting closer to the end of the book. And Grover is afraid of the monster at the end of the book. And of course you turn the page and Grover gets angrier and angrier that you turn the page and he gets more and more afraid of the monster that's coming at the end of the book. This was my favorite book when I was a little preschooler. I made my mom and my dad read it again and again and again to me because I thought it was so funny. I want you to imagine for a moment, what if instead of thinking it was funny, what if I was like Grover? What if I was like Grover? What if I didn't want to read the end of the book because I was scared of the monster? And what if, knowing that, my mom (laughs) made me read that book anyhow? and read it to me even though it scared me and even though it frightened me. What if my mom and my dad did that to me? What kind of parents would they be? You better believe I'd tell you about it from the pulpit too. (laughs) What kind of parents would they be if they did that? And yet, that is exactly how so many of us have treated the Bible. We're afraid to read it because we don't want to get to the end because we heard there's a monster at the end of the book. Now, if my parents, who are human, could comfort their child and help him to receive the truth of the ending with great joy, how much more our Father in heaven, who is perfect? How much more? The book of Revelation, which I think is in our minds as we hear a lot of these things, chapter 1, verse 3 says this, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message. There's not a monster at the end of the book. There's a blessing at the end of the book. Do we hear that? There's a blessing at the end of the book. And God is saying, look, I recognize that some of the images that you see here are going to be startling. I recognize that some of the truths I'm going to entrust to you are going to be troubling. But my child, fear not. Fear not. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Boy, what do we hear God and hear his messengers, his angels say again and again and again throughout scripture when they encounter us, right? Fear not. It always begins with fear not. I want you to hear this today. God isn't trying to scare you straight. God isn't trying to scare you straight. His message isn't, you better shape up because things are going to get rough. (laughs) The word of the Lord is fear not. Are you cowering on the floor today? Are you afraid? Can you feel God's hand on your shoulder as Gabriel's hand was on Daniel's shoulder? Can you feel God saying to you, "Don't, don't fear, don't fear. I know, I know, it was rough. But take my hand and let's stand up and I'm gonna show you how to do this. That's what God did to Daniel through Gabriel. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you can read and study and learn and discover God's promises in full confidence that his blessing follows his words. Every time, every time, his blessing follows his words. No matter how frightening the image may appear, God's presence is sufficient to bring you comfort and strength. So as Gabriel is is wrapping up his explanation to Daniel, he gives Daniel kind of a curious instruction. It's in verse 26. 
Uh, first, he mentions the 2,300, the evenings and the mornings. He says this vision is true. But look at this. But none of this will happen for a long time. So keep this vision a secret. Well, first of all, is Gabriel right? He is. He is. I told you the history. A couple of hundred years go by before this whole Antiochus and the temple and the pig's blood, you know, all of this happens. And so he's saying to Daniel, look, I, 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 you're on a need-to-know basis here, and, and the good Lord has determined that you need to know, and so I'm telling you, but recognize this isn't happening tomorrow. None of this is going to happen for a long time, and so here's what I want you to do. Keep this vision a secret. I've been reading the book of Daniel to you from the New Living Translation, which I generally like quite a bit. In this particular line, I don't think keep the vision a secret is really the best translation. Um, what is literally said here in the ancient language is close the vision. This isn't going to happen for a long time, so close the vision. Kind of like, so let's close the book. If you happen to be reading, for instance, from the NIV, it says seal up the vision, like sealing up a scroll. We're done writing on the scroll, so roll it up and seal it up. I think what's meant here is file it away. File it away with a good seal on it so nobody can mess with it. Guard it from misuse. You don't need it now, but you're going to need it later. God is giving Daniel this vision of the future, but he's also telling Daniel to file it away for later readers because there's some things in there that aren't going to make sense for quite some time. Rams and goats having arguments. I think that's an important thing for us to remember because too often we read the Bible's prophecies about the future and we spend our time and energy taking what we know about right now and speculating about what each specific detail might represent. And so we develop theories and we develop timelines and we debate their merits without remembering this. Visions of the future will make more sense in the future, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Visions of the future don't make sense now. Why? Because we're not in the future. But visions of the future will make more sense when? In the future. When Jesus began his public ministry, he immersed himself in one of the most scripturally literate cultures that the world has ever seen. These guys knew every word of the Holy Scripture. And many, if not most of the people he interacted with would have known the roughly 300 Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the identity of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And yet, hardly any of them recognized that he was the one. Now we look at back in amazement, like how could they not see it? How did they not know? But that's usually the way of the human experience, isn't it? It's difficult to understand what's going on until after it's happened. History is always easier to understand in the rearview mirror, isn't it? In the year 1831, an American preacher by the name of William Miller preached a sermon on Daniel chapter 8, the same text we're reading today. And in this sermon, he told his congregation that he had concluded that that 2,300 number was a symbolic number referring to the future return of Jesus Christ. And he had done the math and he had figured out that that return was going to come in the year 1843. 
preached this sermon in 1831. So over the course of the next 12 years, people got very excited about what William Miller had to say. People from all different kinds of churches across our nation at that time began to buy into what he was saying, that Jesus was going to come back in the year 1843. They actually formed a sect, and they referred to themselves as the Millerites because they followed the teaching of William Miller. And by the time 1843 had come, they had, they had done the math even further, and they had determined that Jesus was going to be returning on October 22nd, 1843. So on October 22nd, 1843, thousands of Millerites across the United States and even into Europe and other places where this message had spread gathered in their churches and in their homes and their places of worship and they gathered for a time of prayer and waiting for the trump. Spoiler alert, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Morning dawned on October 23rd, and it didn't happen. So they went back to the books, and somebody says, I forgot to carry the two. <laughs> it's actually April 18th of 1844. And so once again, six months or so later, on April 18th, the Millerites gathered on April 18th, and, they, and once again, it didn't happen. And then somebody said, was that a two? I, I thought it was a seven. Ah, it's actually June of this year, and so they did it again. And then they noticed another computational error, and they determined that it was actually October 22nd, but they just sounded the wrong year. It's 1844, not 1843. And so October 22nd of 1844, they did it again. And a few less people were involved each time. Eventually, the Millerites gave up. You know, we shouldn't make fun. One of my memories from my teen years is Edgar Wisenhunt publishing the pamphlet 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Paul Lindsay, a very influential Christian author, had said the same thing, that Jesus was going to return no later than the year 1988. Then a bunch of us thought it was Y2K. And then it was the Mayan calendar, and then it was a comet, and then it was this, and then it was that. I mean, it's always been something, isn't it? And it's not just the when of when is Jesus coming back, when is the world coming to an end, it's, it's the who is that, it, the Antichrist. I remember in my childhood hearing somebody teach that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because he had united so much of the globe and his three names uh, all had six letters in them. Six, six, six. Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And then somebody said, well, no, it's not him. It's, it's Mikhail Gorbachev. And then, no, it's, it's, it's the Pope. And well, no, it's the new president. No, it's the new Pope. It, it's the head of the European Union. When the EU got started, there were a bunch of Christians. Oh, my goodness, this is not good. This is the beast with 10 crowns. And the European Union. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's somebody from the United Nations. It's, it's the Secretary General. Never mind. No. <laughs> I think the church would do well to set aside our charts and our graphs of the end times. I think we would benefit much more from reading God's word rather than reading between the lines. Do we understand? There's a difference between reading the lines and reading between the lines. There's plenty in the lines. Why don't we just focus on that? Now, I'm not suggesting that we should cultivate ignorance about end time prophecy or about our future. The Bible wants us to understand what's coming next. It just acknowledges the obvious fact 
that we will understand it better then than we could possibly understand it now. So file it away, is what Gabriel tells Daniel. File it away until you need it. In a few weeks, we're going to read a story about how Daniel discovered that a prophecy that he had been reading his whole life, and we can read the same prophecy because it's in the Bible, he discovered that this prophecy was actually referring to a specific event that was taking place in the palace where he worked during his lifetime. And he, at that point, was able to respond accordingly. He was able to respond well because he knew what God's word said not because he had been staying up late doing advanced mathematics, trying to figure out the secret that he believed was hidden in the shadows of what Scripture said. No, 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 no. He was able to respond well because he knew what Scripture said. But that's a story for another day. Let's get back to Daniel. I'm going to read from verse 27 here. This is the end of the story. How does Daniel end the dream? He says, well, then I, Daniel, was overcome (laughs) and I lay sick for several days. How many of us have ever had a dream that made us sick? That's Daniel here. Listen to this. Afterward, though, I got up and I performed my duties for the king. But I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. I wanted us to take this journey through the book of Daniel together this spring because I think his story is so relevant to a community of of godly people who are challenged to live righteous lives in a world that knows nothing of righteousness. And this verse right here that I just read to you, I think is one of the best examples from Daniel's story. His soul was grieved to the point of physical exhaustion and even physical sickness. His heart was heavy for those who would suffer in the coming days of judgment. And so what does he do about it? He got up and he went back to work. He says, I got up. And I performed my duties for the king. He doesn't write it, but can we infer here? I did what I had been doing every day for the past half of a century. I got up, I drank my coffee, and I went back to work. Daniel served in the place that God had planted him. He was faithfully present in a world that needed his presence if they were ever going to hear God's voice. In the same way, if you're a follower of Jesus today, then God has given you a place and a position in the worldly kingdom so that you can get up and go to work. So that you can go to work as a witness to the righteousness of his kingdom. Knowing what's coming tomorrow doesn't excuse you from the life God has given you today. On the contrary, you have a godly duty today because of what's coming tomorrow. Because understanding the future doesn't necessitate escaping the present. And that's, I think, where the Millerites got lost, right? Understanding the future doesn't mean I have to check out of the present. You can know what's coming and still be faithful to what's here right now. Because I want you to hear me say this. The identity of the Antichrist is not more important than the identity of the suffering person next to you that needs to experience the love of Jesus. The timing of the rapture is not more important than the time that it will take to walk alongside the brother or the sister who needs encouragement today. The mark of the beast is not more important than the mark you'll make on the lives of the people God has given you to serve if you do so humbly and faithfully, if you live a life that is righteous in ruin. The world you live 
The world you live in might look like ruin to you. And oh, it can be tempting to want to escape it. But these ruins are the very place that God has called us to reflect his righteousness. Can I give you one closing thought? We almost passed over it, but the very beginning of Daniel's dream, he says, I was transported to the city of Susa. I told you Susa is a city kind of on the eastern outer reaches of the Babylonian Empire. Well, about 75 years after Daniel had this dream, Persians now are in charge of everything, and they actually build their palace in Susa. And the Persian king takes for his wife a young Hebrew girl by the name of Esther, 75 years after Daniel has this vision. And Esther is living through the turmoil of a life she didn't ask for. If anybody has ever been surrounded by ruin, I think we could make a good argument that Esther stands as, as the example here. And she knows that more ruin is on the way. And she has this conversation with her uncle saying, I, 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 don't, I don't know what we can do. I know about the trouble that's coming and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what to do. If you know Esther's story, you're going to remember the most quotable line in the entire story. Her uncle looks her in the eye and he says, you know, who knows? Maybe you have come to this place for such a time as this. <clears throat> uncle doesn't tell her about the future. Or, well, we know that Daniel said these things 75 years ago and these prophecies are happening and, you know, the, the political structure is such that this, and I believe that uh, Xerxes is actually the Antichrist. No, 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 no. He, he, he doesn't go into any of those things. He looks at his niece and he said, don't lose track of the fact that God knows where you are and that he put you there for a purpose and for a reason. And no matter what, no matter what is coming down the road, God has placed you where he has placed you and he is always faithful. Maybe, just maybe, what you see as ruin is God's plan to put his righteousness on display. Maybe, just maybe, the story that your life tells is going to change the course of history for the people of God as Esther's did. So next time some preacher gets up and starts telling you history lessons about the ancient Greek empire, nod and smile and placate him, because we like that. But know that the real story is going to be told by the testimony you tell at home that afternoon, or in your neighborhood that evening, or in your workplace tomorrow morning, because God has planted you where he has planted you serving with righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I thank you, Lord, for that portion of your word that feels so overwhelming. Anything God-sized must be overwhelming to us. Lord, as we receive it, help us to steward it well, to not be afraid to be afraid, but to know that you have given us comfort and that you haven't given us these messages because there's a monster at the end of the book, but rather because you desire to comfort your people with your presence. 
Help us to file these things away. Gabriel, uh, years later, would, would have some news from Mary that I don't imagine she was very appreciative of in the moment it came. But our word tells us that she filed it away. Mary treasured these things up in her heart. She pondered it. We're going to need to know. We're going to need to know. But in the meantime, Lord, you have placed us where you have placed us because your plans are perfect. Your wisdom is perfection. And you know where you need us. So our prayer, Lord, is find us faithful. Find us faithful to the call you have given us. Knowing what we, what we know about where we're headed, but seeing what you have given us today. Find us faithful, Lord, we pray. It's in your name. Amen.